Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Has it been five years? Six? It seems like a lifetime. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. There was madness in any direction, at any hour. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Hello and welcome to episode number four. Welcome back. Of 14 Months Apart. I am your host, Bob Barrow. And I am your other host, Jacqueline Barrow. <laughs> a little worried there for a second. Am I your other host? What does that mean? No, I just feel like there's a better way to say it than other. Yeah. Well, what would you, if you had carte blanche to say? Co-host. There we co- go. I am co- your co-host. And I am yeah. your co-host, Jacqueline yeah. Barrow. I'm your different host. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the any other insert simile here host. Yeah, welcome back, guys. Uh, we hope you've uh, enjoyed episode three, our uh, bite out of Jurassic Park. I know I, I enjoyed my pun-laden that was really uh, nice. description. Yep, thank you. I had I had written one. I was like, this is really funny. And then I thought about it for 10 minutes. I'm like, fuck, this is the exact intro that Ariel wrote for the 14 or for oh, frame no. part. We did it, so we can't do that one. No. But no, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed uh, the last episode. This one uh, is a, a bit of a switch. Uh, e- even though at this time we have no real framework uh, in place other than we're going to talk about books and movies and our childhood and stuff. But this one is the first one we have plans to repeat this format. The format, not the movie. No, oh, not... dear Lord, <laughs> don't make me watch that again. No, uh, the, the movies itself won't be repeated, but this format of talking about a, a, a book that has been turned into a movie uh, that is near and dear to our hearts. Or maybe a TV series. Yes, uh, any, any variety, but something that started out as a, a literary piece of literary material and became a movie. So we might come up with a snappy name for it. In hindsight, we probably should have come up with a snappy name for this format. But this is our uh, our maiden voyage of this. So we will be looking at, this is my choice first, uh, because, I don't know, I'm, I'm taller and more needy. I don't know. What? <laughs> with it. Actually, this one happened first because the book was shorter. That's really the only Thank reason. God. <laughs> but we, this week, as you already know, this episode, damn it. This episode. I'm going to get it eventually. We are going to be looking at Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, both the book and the movie. I'm trying not to make any noise. Yeah. <laughs> She's just sitting here just Disapproving tisks, sir. Yeah, rubbing the bridge of her nose. Just. I'm trying. also super tired tonight, so I'm trying to pump myself up. Yeah. <laughs> trying not to do mom's famous <sighs> sound. Yeah. Whenever she sees something she didn't like, it was always... And it would just <laughs> suck you right out of the movie or the show. But before we get into it, because I know Jack is so stoked and has just pages of notes. This brought her around on, on Thompson. In I have way. some notes. I, I really do. <laughs> we are going to talk about some new movies. Yeah, That before we've we seen recently. In. So over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been to the cinema. And uh, Jack... You've seen a couple of new movies recently. Why don't we start with you? I have, yes. So for my youngest son, Sawyer's third birthday, we decided it was time to introduce him to the cinema. <laughs> um, he already is a an avid movie watcher. He really enjoys 
movies, and he'll he has the patience to sit through most of it, which, as you know, is it's a difficult task to get that child to sit down. Oh yeah, he is. He's constantly on the move, so it is fun <laughs> to see him zone into a movie, though. But we decided that we were going to take him to see Toy Story four, um, and I think it was it went pretty well. He was. You weren't with us. Bob made yep. it very clear that we're not allowed to do things like talk in the theaters, like make comments, like laugh too loud, like dig into the popcorn bag too oh, much. It's, it's just have, <laughs> we we have very different movie watching styles. <laughs> we we do. I take it very seriously, and it's the problem is it's I, I love you guys so much, but it's like the Mr. Bean bit where he's trying to open the candy in church, and it's like <laughs> you guys wait for quiet moments to have you know loud conversations and eat food, but as soon as the action starts, you get very quiet. Like, this is when we eat. But no, I get very anal about it. So we didn't invite you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the, uh, what Jack tried Sawyer to say. requested uh, sushi for his lunch, although he only wanted the free noodles that came with the meal. Um, <laughs> That's weird rubbery noodles. R- rubbery glass noodles. Anyway, we went to see it. It was great. He loved the big screen, the giant screen. If you ask him, he'll tell you that there was a dinosaur game at the movies, and that's all it was about, because the arcade <laughs> is just going a million miles a minute. But no, it was really good. And the movie, I think... So, um, so spoiler-free. Spoiler-free. No, saying. I can't spoil this movie for anybody, especially Bob. Is um, It follows the vein of the first one, but I think it gets even more complex in character development. Well, that seemed to be where they were going with yeah, it. Yeah, uh, you had to. You couldn't throw fancy... Um, imagery and just a bunch of nonsense. Plot lines. Yeah. No, it's a simple plot line that follows roughly the first one. Um, it still has that heart, which I don't think the second and third. Well, the third one maybe the did. The third one had a ton. Should we should we tell the story of watching the third movie? Oh, when that I made and, you do it. Me, you, and Logan watched. <laughs> sure, so, go ahead. <laughs> years ago, when Toy Story three first came out on video, or I guess DVD. Uh, Jack, my uh, her son, and I were watching Toy Story three, and I I just heard that it got a little sad at the end. Oh, well, that's like saying that the Hindenburg caught on a little bit of fire. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so we're watching, and I we saw Toy Story in theaters. Like this is this was this is monumental. It's, and was it's it ninety four with us? Yeah, ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. So we're sitting there watching it and when it gets to the scene of them all in the incinerator and they hold hands yeah it's really it was really sad well i just start sobbing uncontrollably then and then when we get to the andy has his last play i don't even like talking about it andy <laughs> has his last play with them and like i if you know me it's i take all that stuff very seriously and i i worried about my toys when I wasn't around, if they were That's okay. That's an understatement. Yeah. You still worry about them. I get, every now and then, I'm like, are they still in the box? Are they okay? Oh, but I was, at the end of the movie, I was sobbing uncontrollably. I have not cried that hard in a movie before. Well, as it finishes, the door closes upstairs and mom comes home. So she comes downstairs and I stand and I'm trying to explain to her <laughs> this this is why I'm crying because it was really beautiful. But all that came out was <laughs> Logan's pissing his pants laughing yeah, at me. Yeah, because at even at six, yeah, at six he was questioning like, your mental stability. Like, really? It's sad, Uncle Bob, but like get your shit together, yeah. man. Like, I I don't think that this one gets as emotional. It has less to do with the kids and more to do with the toys themselves. Um, but Marty and I did shed a tear or two. I think Logan did too. Really good. It's never going to touch the first one, but you know how I feel about sequels. Not a huge fan. Mm-hmm. But this at least follows familiar characters. And the characters themselves don't change. It's still Woody. It's still Buzz. It's still Tom Hanks. It's still um, Tim the Tool Man. So well, I think everyone except Jim Varney is He's even back. in it. Did they use sound clips? Yeah, or? they used enough. They gathered enough sound clips to give him... There was a couple lines that he was in. Okay. I know the same was with uh, Mr. Potato Head, uh, Dom DeLuise, because uh, he had passed away. Oh, maybe that's what they... So They built his... The Potato Head's performance was built. He was the one that they put sound clips towards. Yeah. The Jim Varney's character was still in it. Yeah. Slinky, but I... You're right. Maybe he didn't talk. It, no, it was the same actor that played him in the third one. Uh, Waterboy with Adam Sandler? Yes. You know the Cajun guy who only talks in gibberish? Yeah. That's who took over oh, the role okay. of Slinky Dog because he knew Jim Barton. So I'm thinking about Mr. Potato Head. Yeah. 
But it was great. It was good. Um, we'll watch it again when it comes out. Maybe we'll do a, a Toy Story yeah. marathon or something on the That'd show. Be fun. We'll talk about all four of them. And you saw something else as we well. Did. Another we did. Because um, everything's Disney now. I know. We went to see The Lion King live act, or is this not really live action? It's CG. CG. Um, I, the Lion King is not my favorite Disney movie. I could take it or leave it. I don't care for it either. Um, my favorite is um, The Little Mermaid, followed closely by Alice in Wonderland. So mm-hmm. those are my go to. But the one thing that I always loved about The Lion King is the soundtrack. It's just stunning because it's Elton John. Yeah. Um, and. Regardless of whether I saw it a couple times as a kid, I still know all the lyrics. Sawyer loves it. Um, so we decided a couple weeks ago we were going to take him to a Sunday matinee. Um, didn't go as well as Toy Story 4. I think it was a little frightening. Seeing It's heavy. The original is, is heavy. The original is heavy, but cartoons, you kind of get lost in it. But because it the CG is so good, you have trouble telling reality um, from the fantasy, and yep. I think when the hyenas came out, they aren't as stupid as they make them look in the Disney animated version. So he was terrified. He got up and he was ready to go. Put his Spider-Man <laughs> hat on, and I said, "Where are you going? I'm going home. <laughs> Those hyenas are scary." <laughs> yeah, he I didn't was. Know that. Oh yeah, he was marching down the stairs. So we kind of had to wrangle him for the rest of the movie, and yeah, it was just it was a lot for a three year old. Yeah, might but have been a little too heavy. I before. think so, but he enjoyed it. Like he's he did stay to the end. Um, the one funny thing that did happen, or maybe it's only funny if you have kids and realize they say stupid things all the time. Uh, there's the opening circle of life scene. They hold the little lion up, and it's all great. And then they flash the Lion King and big writing on the screen. And one little kid screams in the audience, "Oh, is it over then?" <laughs> <laughs> and everyone laughed and. We all had fun. <laughs> but it was good. It was nice um, to watch something in theaters. We don't often go to the theaters. So hopefully that'll be the start of going now that we can take thing two. Yeah. <laughs> take the madman into the theater. Yeah. So while they were going to see The Lion King, I, uh, <laughs> I went and saw Spider-Man Far From Home. So th- this will be a little spoilery, but I always found with Marvel, you got to... Watch yourself. You got about three weeks. Or so to. Hey, to I see never it. got any Endgame spoilers that I just wasn't smart enough to figure out myself. So. Well, yeah. So I, I won't get too spoilery, other than what people already know at this point. Uh, but it's for those that don't know, it's the wrap up of Phase Three. So this takes place a few months after Endgame. So uh, Tony Stark is dead, and Spider-Man Peter Parker is reeling from that and adjusting to a world without Iron Man. It it was good. It was a very good sequel. It's, I found that you're trying to balance two movies. You're trying to balance that fun, really upbeat bounce of Spider-Man Homecoming. But yeah, it's like a kid's movie yeah. or a, a teen movie. Yeah, it's very much in that uh, John Hughes vein of a, of a teen movie where the kid just happens to be Spider-Man. Yeah. Balancing it with this incredible loss that Peter has suffered in losing Tony Stark. So those elements to me rubbed up against each other a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, where I almost wanted a more—I don't want to say dour movie, but a more serious film about Peter dealing with this loss. And that's paired with a very traditional kind of '70s style sequel of what's the, what do we do with the next one? Let's hit the road to Europe. Yeah. You know? So that's fun because it's it takes us out of New York. We get to see Spider-Man doing Spider-Man shit around the world. Uh, for any fans that know the villain, Mysterio, they've, you know, is he a villain or isn't he? Well, we all know. And Jake Gyllenhaal, who I don't overly care for. Oh, I like him. He is, he's frantically handsome in this movie. He's always frantically <laughs> like, handsome. His perfectly coiffed beard, and he is just, he gets to play so heroic until the switch comes, and then he gets to play more of an overtly comic booky villain than the MCU usually uses. Uh, he flat out monologues and explains his whole evil plan. Interesting. As they're toasting their success when they've fooled Peter. But no, it was it was good. 
It was a very good movie. The, uh, Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is just... He's great. He's a sweet little thing. Yeah. He is what makes these new movies tick. Whereas um, Tobey Maguire, I could just he was, he kick was, him. I can't stand him. He was too old. It was just all wrong. He's know? just got this, like, arrogant air about him that doesn't work. Like, so, interesting fact... This afternoon we watched Into the Spider Verse. Oh, is that shit, the animated you did? one? Yeah. That's I okay. I fell asleep Oscar. at the very end, but that's because I was tired from berry picking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought it was good. Well, yeah. One thing I, it beat Pixar last year for. I the didn't Oscar. think they were going to be able to pull off this switch to um, somebody who wasn't Spider-Man, like we're, that traditional, we're used to following that traditional storyline. The traditional line. Peter Parker over to Miles Morales. Yeah, and I I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work, but I think it worked really well. No, I I haven't seen it, but I've heard... Did you do it? We rented? It's on Netflix. Or Crave. Okay. I'm totally going to watch that. Yeah, it's on Crave. It is wall-to-wall A-plus reviews. I haven't heard anyone say a bad thing. And I love John Hamm from uh, his stand-up. Not John Hamm, sorry. I was going to say, who does John Hamm play? uh, The guy that plays Spider-Pig. He's on uh, Big Mouth. Uh, His stand-up is hilarious. Oh, Nick Kroll? No, uh, it's the other one. Not... uh, Oh, he looks like Steve. Yeah. He totally does. The guy from the league who's just a slime. Yeah, no, it's uh, I. The cast is great. I've heard nothing but good things. So. Oh, you haven't watched it. I haven't watched it. Oh. Yeah. No, so I don't know what happened after a certain point. It doesn't matter. Like I'm sure the kids will put it on again, but it was, it's good. No, I I'm looking forward to seeing it, and yeah, go see go see any of these movies if they're still playing near you. Uh, Go see. Far from home, it was good. Make sure, like, I don't understand the idiots that leave before the credit, the end credit scenes. We've been trained. It's the twenty third Marvel oh, movie. Oh, if you're gonna go see a Marvel, yeah, sit. Uh, the mid credit sequence has a pretty shocking revelation. Inclu- I'm not gonna spoil it because Aaron Grinley spoiled it for me. You prick. Um, uh He he's like, what? It's not a spoiler. I'm like, that's it was a huge spoiler. A uh, certain uh, actor appears. Uh, and I'm not going to say any more than that. Okay. And no, it's not. Tony Stark is not Robert Tony Jr. It's something very Spider-Man related, and I wish I could have had that surprise because it was. it's like, they fucking did it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, no, good times. Good times had by all uh, with these three movies. So now we're going to talk about something that Jack loves even more. Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> now, now, Jack, before we start decided to do this episode, and I'm sure other than hearing me prattle on about it, did you have any experience with Hunter Thompson or with this movie? Yeah, I've watched it. I watched it when probably when I was 17, and when I was in an experimental phase with cinema and just trying to figure out what I liked. And I probably liked it. I think I remember thinking, like, what is going on? And I like that kind of art house stuff back mm-hmm. in the day. I did. In terms of his writing, there are pockets of brilliance with a whole lot of vomit. And, <laughs> and like, literally and figuratively. So wading through that for me... I just don't have the time or the will to do so. Okay. I was back in the day, and I we talked about this, a huge Tom Robbins fan. Okay. And I find them very similar. Tom Robbins has less of a social political message sometimes to deliver, and okay. sometimes his writing's really difficult to wade through, um, even more so. But, yeah, I didn't have a lot. Didn't have a lot of experience. I was not drawn to drawn to his Gonzo work. in any way. Okay, so what we'll do then is before we get into the movies itself, yet again, uh, false start, take three. Now more endings in Return of the King. Are we having Seriously. starts here? Uh, just to give us a little bit of background information on the man himself, because I think right. it's important because you have to understand the context of this to actually even start to go. Oh, okay, I get it. Getting into some because Thompson's body of work is huge, his and his character is even bigger. So getting into him, I feel sometimes people have asked me like, "What what do I start with?" It's kind of like trying to get into comic books. It's like, "Well, I want to read X Men. Where do I start? Like, what do you get into?" So Thompson was is from Kentucky. He was born uh, July eighteenth, nineteen thirty seven. Died, uh, committed suicide February twentieth, two thousand five. Really? The, yep. 
Did he have mental illness or? Um, no, he was 67 and his his health was failing. Oh, okay. Uh, and he had always been a very gregarious, physical man. Uh, he started out as a sports writer, so he was always an athlete. Uh, was oh, always a real moving. Brockmire. Yeah. <laughs> always moving, always on the go. And his copious appetites for drugs and alcohol and stuff over the years uh. took his toll. Um, and, yeah, ended up, he shot himself. Oh, that's upsetting. So it's it's upsetting, but it's something he'd also talked about for years, how uh, trapped he'd feel if he couldn't take his own life. Very much from that Hemingway school of, of masculinity. And when it happened, uh, his kid, his son, and his grandson were there. And his son said, I thought that a book had dropped. Oh. That a book had fallen on the ground. So he didn't immediately go into the kitchen to check and went in and saw what he'd done. And just kind of, you know, read the note. Uh, student for a bit called the sheriff, uh, who was Thompson's friend, went outside and fired the gun dry as a salute to his dad. Whoa. Yeah, heavy. It's a heavy family. Uh, started his career writing about sports. He was in the Navy or the Air Force for a while. Didn't last long. Uh, wrote for the newspaper there. But the first true article that he wrote that's considered the birth of gonzo journalism was for a magazine called Scanlon's Monthly in 1970. And it was called The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. And that's when he really took on this idea of what uh, the school of, you could call it like the new journalism. So can you describe what gonzo journalism is? Because Gonzo it's... journalism, yes. What that meant is you take your, so it's, a, it's an offshoot of the new journalism, which was from the 70s, and it's a technique of the, the reporter injects themselves into the story. They are a central character. And you're combining... So you're using heavy participant observation here. In a big way. Because before this, reporting had been, you were a neutral observer. No. In new journalism and in Gonzo, he's going in and he's creating a situation. And it's more concerned about truth than facts. So his stories, while it's true... The lies are just as true as the truths. And he would, <laughs> yeah, he would, he'd make stuff up. He would publish stories accusing uh, political candidates of taking drugs that he had made up the names of just to get reactions. And Is that, this like the Onion News? <laughs> um, kind of an offshoot of that. But at the core, though, always telling the truth, even though... It might not be, like I said, he's not laying out the facts. Like, the candidate said this, the candidate said that. He's like, no, the candidate was obviously twisted on some kind of foreign narcotic. And, you know, but all littered through that is what horrible things these people are actually saying. So a social commentary. Oh, yeah, in a huge way. Veiled in madness because any straight-laced person is not reading this. (laughs) At the time, no. it's, It's total counterculture. And it's important to remember the period it was coming out of. You know, the the 60s had died at Altamont, and you're now into the 70s and the grim reality of the love generation failing. And now here's Thompson and a group of other writers, guys like Tom Wolfe, Truman Capote, Norman Mailer, etc., kind of leading this charge of, okay, love and energy didn't work. We are going to start hammering now and be so brutal and honest about everything, but we're also going to lie to you and because you're being lied to. Now, is that because that's what they believed or because they were so mucked up on drugs and psychedelics and liquor? Um, I think I can't comment on some of the other writers involved because I haven't read their work. But with Thompson, yes. He always, he was iconoclastic in the true sense of the word, anti-authoritarian from day one. Uh, he said famously he learned that authority was fucked when he was something like 13. And some friends of his were going around knocking over uh, mailboxes. And they got pinched and taken to the taken to jail. Well, like and, they should be. Yeah, exactly. And all the rich kids' dads showed up because he was hanging out with the upper-class society, upper class society. And they all got let out. Yep. And he had to spend the weekend in jail because their parents bought them out. And that's how it works to this day. But that's so when do you learned. hate authority or do you hate rich people? Well, it's 
he's a man of dichotomy because he famously became wealthy doing yeah, this. Yeah, but then he but goes around acting like a flippin' fool, and what is that proving? If you're not going to do what I like, I'm just going to shit all over you? Like, no, literally? No, it's it's nothing to do gonna with... Going to go into a swanky hotel and cause a massive, disgusting ruckus? Well, that's the thing. So let's... We're... Okay. <laughs> the the th- issue with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the, the book itself, he famously called it a failed experiment in gonzo journalism because it's really not true. Uh, the, so the, he didn't do it? The... He did some of that stuff, but the the genesis of the book in, starts just like in the book. You know, I was with my attorney, and they were got a call from the magazine to send me out to the mid four hundred. He had been trying to interview the real life Oscar Ziacosta, Doctor Gonzo, for a, peer, a piece he was uh, writing called "Strange Rumblings in Alzheimer's." Because Acosta at the time was a very famous civil rights lawyer. Okay, uh, and he was a. Uh, heavily involved in the Chicano community and he was taking on cases that nobody would. You know, guys that were being fucked by the police on a daily basis. He was going in and making, causing noise in the courtroom. Well, uh, Casa didn't feel comfortable talking uh, in public in L.A. because his clients were being murdered. So Thompson suggested, hey, come to Vegas with me while I write a, originally a 250-word photo caption for Playboy. And, what? Yep, that's what he was hired to write. So they went, got up to, I'm sure, you know, they they did drugs and carried on and drank and were foolish, but not to the extent you see in the book. And then a few weeks later, they went back and did the narcotics conference. So they don't actually happen in real time like they do in the book. Right. And so it's, you're getting this hyper, it feels real because he's using journalism techniques. And he's talking to you, but he's anchoring it in this fictional narrative, which is what gonzo journalism does so well. Right. So that's why it can feel like, well, he's obviously just a fucking idiot, just running around. Well, and that's what I got. Like reading the book, it was really difficult. Like I, I have some notes. Okay, let's let's talk about the book first then, because it's. While the movie does a very good job of capturing the essence of the book, it's there's a lot that's left out. So let's talk about the book. I'm trying to get my notes, but there's a call coming into my phone, and my notes are on my phone. Okay, so, <laughs> so I just gotta wait for it to, yeah, to I peter think, out. Uh, I think mom and dad are calling. So they are. Yeah. I can't answer. Sorry, guys. Um, so the first note I remember making, um, and I didn't make that many because after a while I was like, I just gotta get through this. Um, was would $300 really buy all those drugs? Drugs were a lot cheaper back then. Okay, so here is a list. You're going to do the list from the this start? This is where I was like, whoa, this is going to get the fuck out of control. Um, the sporting editors had also given me $300 in cash, most of which had already been spent on extremely dangerous drugs. Uh, we had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine and a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, which they didn't have in the film, no, I noticed. They were drinking Schlitz. A uh, pint of raw ether and two dozen amyls. Um, that just seems well, it's a little extreme. Like, maybe that would buy you half your salt shaker full of cocaine. But it's also, at that time, drugs were a lot cheaper and your money went farther. A case of beer back then would have been a couple of bucks. Bottle of liquor would have been four or five dollars, so it's it's different, and also it's fictional, right? Well, but like if you're going to do it like a journalistic piece, why not have some semblance of reality? That's like I'm wondering when the cops are coming to get them for this busted up car they've stolen. Well, they didn't steal the car; they rented the car. Yeah, but for that long. Yep. Mm. <laughs> so the. So I took a note of page four, and I didn't take another one until 179. (laughs) I'm not going to make a case for the book. I I think the book speaks for itself, but you you are correct. If you're not into this kind of madness trip, this savage journey to the heart of the American dream that they're on, you're not going to enjoy it. 
this because it's a very intense prose style. You're not following any kind of traditional narrative. No, and it wasn't the prose that bothered me because I think he's a poet and he has some moments of brilliance. It was the ridiculous behavior that I don't have time for. Like there are so many stories that came out of the end of the 60s and the 70s that did a snapshot of what culture was like. Why did, like, to me, all it was was highlighting how stupid these two idiots were. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> it's, like, I, I'm struggling to understand the point of it all. I get what he's saying. I get the point. I'm struggling to understand the delivery. Okay. When I, when I came to the book and the movie, I was in college. Did you read the book first? Uh, I think so. We may have watched the movie first because Jaws had the uh, the Criterion disc that I have. Okay. So I was really a gigantic pothead in, in college. And I didn't, like a lot of people, like you smoke a joint and you kind of sit and chill out. I didn't do that. Uh, Jack can attest to this. When I smoked weed, I got very frantic. And I got, I could get very aggressive about and I was because you get that that's well, not a nice experience maybe it's, it's you not. should have done something that like it's not at all uh, what but is it indica just, into bed sativa but back then <laughs> it was just you bought weed that the person had it wasn't oh. like nowadays where you go on the internet and they bring science to your house <laughs> it's a world I'm not familiar with no so. it's you used to have to go to some place to someone you didn't like sit there for 20 minutes, make nice, and then leave with, maybe they had a couple different ones. Wine is nice. And it was usually, <laughs> you know, like, well, this one's pretty good. And this one, I, I don't advise uh, you to smoke if you want to not die. Like, what? that's usually what it was. And that was our oh, goal. I just I don't was, understand drug culture. Maybe that's I was, my problem. <laughs> I, was in a, I was in a bad place in my life, and I got frantic on weed. So, and we were fucking just ripped all the time. So when we got into this, me and Jaws just used to spend hours we'd be pacing around the apartment, reading the book to each other, just frantic on this. And at, this, at the same time, being so inspired by the prose and his word choices and his ability to turn a phrase, which is it's gorgeous, just insane, Yeah, but kind of missing the core elements. Like you said. It's, so you were missing. I was missing okay. at the time, and I know I was. Well, and I can see that the thrill of this trip, if that is something that you're into or you're dabbling in or find it funny or amusing, then you're going to want to watch the movie and you're going to find the hilarity in it all. Yes. I was disgusted as a mother, a parent, an upstanding citizen <laughs> that anybody in their right mind would do that in public or to a hotel room or it just yeah, we we never went to those extents but there was lots of times where we would we would get ourselves just right tuned up and be like let's go down to the mall and like cuz it's you're in Oakville so you're surrounded by decadence and depraved depraved rich people everywhere it's like let's go down to the mall and like fucking make a scene in the jewelry store so like we go down into the jewelry store and like start like hanging off each other or being weird or standing too close to people or just fucking out of our minds because at that age and it's easy to just see the the craziness and well that's all that society sees and it's very attractive uh, to certain people that kind of you know bad craziness like a hunter famously said I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. So that's kind of the trip that I was on at that time. But knowing that there's a, there's some kind of deeper truth here that he's looking at. And as I got older, rereading the book, reading almost every other thing he's ever written, uh, I think other than some of his collected letters, I've read half of each of those volumes. I've read almost every other word mm-hmm. that he's written. But it's his ability to, while being, you know, such an exaggerated character, all twisted on drugs and drink, yeah, still being able to stare through all that to the essentials of a situation or a theme or an Well, idea. and I tried to keep an open mind. I really did because that's the point is sharing these things with each other and then bringing someone over to your side or persuading them to see why you like it. Mm-hmm. I did not get that. I couldn't get it from the book. And it had to be visual for me to actually understand 
what he was saying. It wasn't until yeah. we watched the movie last night that I was like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. Even though I read those passages, I made a note of the passages that are specifically talking about 60s culture, and I heard it, but it... <sighs> Which is a shame because that's... For, for such a successful adaptation, one of its big failings is a lot of the really heavy stuff about searching for the American dream and this whole idea is left out. I disagree. You're constantly hit over the head with, we're searching for the American dream. Well, they're saying it. You're seeing clips of... You're, you're seeing pieces of it. But to me, the biggest... I've read this book like 15 times, so I'm a biased <laughs> observer on this. But to me, this time reading it, the taco stand scene at the end of the book, where it's just the transcription of him and uh, oh, Oscar yeah. talking to each other. I remember reading that passage over and over again, and I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get this. Like, why? I feel like there's something here, but am I missing it? But reading it this time, that you know they've been they've gone through all this bad craziness, and you know this put you know physically destroying themselves is a symbolic representation of the death of the '60s and all this stuff, and got all that. But seeing it now, it's like you go to this, you leave the decadence of Las Vegas behind, and go to this poorly run, you know, quarter taco stand. Asking them, well, where's the American dream? What's the American dream? Oh, that must be that closed-down mental institution where everybody drinks and does drugs. Yeah, the American dream. It's just three streets over. It's a couple of blocks over. Oh, wait, I think they tore it down. I think it, they, it's a parking yeah. lot now. And reading it this time, I'm like, okay. Yeah. I get it now. And it's a perfect mirror image of the insanity that's Las Vegas. Oh, and that is America. Like, yeah. I made some notes... Um, if we can talk about the the movie now. Sure. So <laughs> the start of my notes is that the opening is more politically charged than the book opening. Because we don't have that montage of yes. the 60s. So it jumps right into them in the car, being ridiculous, driving very dangerously while under the influence, might I add. <laughs> um, in the beginning, there's no storyline, there's no plot, there's no character development. I don't get where they're going, what they're doing. It isn't until he gets the phone call at the hotel. I'm like, why yeah. didn't you start with that? Why didn't you start with them eating and conversing and then put them in the car and go? Like it. Traditional narrative. That's <sighs> what you're seeking there is the traditional narrative. And then I wrote, like, like, what is the point other than a snapshot of people who are a waste of space? Oh my god, that's... Because that's what they are. Like, if I saw those people in public, I don't care what they have to say. I'd be phoning the police. They're destroying public property. They're being drunk and disorderly. They're scaring people. And it's not, I think, until... And then I made a note about, are they Vietnam War veterans? And they're having some weird kind of flashback and trying to deal with it. No. And, uh, okay, so that makes me even more disappointed. <laughs> However, when okay. I was sitting here waiting for you to come back in... I kind of got the correlation of the death of the 60s and into the 70s and the unknown, comparing it to Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises or uh, The Great Gatsby, which is F. Scott Fitzgerald. And both of those authors were monstrous influences. And I dislike both of them. I don't care for them either. No. And I just their narrative prose and the male patriarchy at work, but what... The Sun Also Rises does because I've read it several times trying to make sense of it. I'm like, what the hell is Hemingway writing about? All it is is a bunch of drunk people going from bar to bar to bar, drinking their mint juleps and their Manhattans, or Manhattan may not have been around, who knows, I, getting drunk and disorderly in the streets yeah. of Spain. But it's that post-war generation who had no direction, nowhere mm -hmm. to go. Society is essentially crumbling and we're waiting for World War II. Likewise, in this, yep. it's the same thing, but we've now transported from a uh, classic 30s um, setting to mm -hmm. the 70s. Yeah. And 70s Las Vegas could not be any more different from, you know, the summer of love in the 60s in San Francisco yeah. where he was, you know, and he's not just coming out of San Francisco in the 60s. He was also in Chicago in 67 at the Democrat National Democratic Ooh, National Convention. Okay. And was sitting standing in the hotel looking out in the streets as the cops were 
basically beating the 60s to death in the streets. Right. And seeing all these people get fucking beat up and smashed. So that's... He's on this, you could say, decline uh, philosophically as you're coming out of this is where we're headed. This is this I, is what I we're get doing it. Now. I do get it now, and I'm glad that I watched the movie and we're hashing it out. I will never want to experience it again. But I and I feel like there's an easier way to get your message across than to just like punch someone in the face with it. But I respect his approach. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything but. Um, I don't think it was until the circus scene or like the circus bar. When they go to the uh, circus circus. That yeah. I realized it was a commentary on the American circus. The circus that is the States. Yep. And the American dream is a flippin' joke. Yep. And people being disgusting and turning into lizards. I mean, that was a hallucinogenic yeah. but consequence. That's, but that's it. Like, he even says, you know, this is this is what the whole hep world would be like if the Nazis had won the war. You know. And I, I do get that. I just, that message is almost lost because then I'm like, or is it just a retelling of his ridiculous life choices? Well, I also think with, by taking it to the screen, and it is a very literal adaptation, uh, more so than a lot of movies. He, Gilliam doesn't fuck with the narrative. No, it's pretty spot on. But I found that because it's, you break the movie into two chunks. There's the first set of the mid four hundred, and then there's the I was much grimmer. It was be done after that. The much grimmer second half, and I I don't care for the second half as much. I was disgusted because when you take this to film, the the manic, crazy, more fun stuff gets much more cartoony, and the super gr- the more grim elements become very great. Frightening. Um, Benicio Del Toro was, like, Johnny Depp's performance was a little bit lighthearted. You thought he was crazy, but he didn't ever frighten me. His performance was frightening. Benicio Del Toro Toro is fucking terrifying in this movie. behavior is gross. It's disgustingly gross. Where the other guy, I'm like, you're just Rango, you cute little (laughs) lizard. You're just freaking out with your big old cigarette. Like... Well, that's the thing is Thompson, he was, or Raul Duke, the fictional character, he's always in control. Even when he's out of control, he can, at a dime, seem to come down off these drugs and fully understand and be aware of his situation. Which I don't think is realistic. It's not. Because that drug trip that happened, they would be dead. I'm sorry. They would be dead. It's fictional. You can't follow acid with human adrenal gland, which I don't even think is a real thing. It's not. With cocaine and ether and liquor. You'd be dead. The the adrenochrome is fake. Okay, I figured. Uh, Yeah, he's he's done that a couple times. Another during the 72 uh, presidential campaign. Uh, which he wrote, Fear and Loathing, on the campaign trail, uh, 72. He accused uh, Nixon's running mate of being fucked up on a drug called Ibogaine that he got from, like, deepest Peru. So every time he'd say something weird, Thompson would publish a story saying that, oh, the candidate's obviously twisted on Ibogaine again. Which I think is funny because if you were a hardcore um, party drug user, after watching this or reading it, would you go in search of... Like, oh, totally. <laughs> we Googled just, it. I'm like, is, Uber, is, Uber, is uh, Drenochrome real? Like, can we get some of this? Because this oh is super metal. Oh, man. Yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's a storytelling device to really kick it up over the top to show we've transitioned from even a fictional reality into complete madness. Well, and I think it, it could be used as like a PSA on the danger of drugs <laughs> and how useless in terms of what you get back to society you could possibly become and that you should probably be in jail if that's how you're spending your life. You can write nice literary pieces from your jail cell and not cause chaos and dismay in the streets. Well, as he says, you know, lots of good books have been written in prison. Yeah, oh, <laughs> for know. sure. But he's he's one of those few writers that drug and alcohol abuse didn't derail their ability to... Or did it? Because he killed himself. Well, that's... The, like, the, let's be honest. The end of his life, that was a combination of a lot of things, but... How many were caused by drugs and alcohol oh, and imbibing? Year, like, years of, of drug and alcohol abuse. Oh, yeah, that, that takes a toll on your body. Most of those guys that live that hard lifestyle don't make it out of it. They get 66, 69 is, you know... So was he successful? I'd say, yeah. He, he was a successful writer, 
but I'd have to ask his kids and his wife or his partner or whoever um, if they felt that he... He is so larger than life in his in reality, and this character that he created overwhelmed him into such a degree that that's hard to say. You He had so many acolytes. Mm-hmm. Um and operating out of Owl Farm, his his home in Colorado, you could go there on a Wednesday night and there would be a U.S. senator, a poet laureate, uh, the guy that tended the, the bar down the street mixed with Hollywood royalty. And that was his favorite thing to do is mix all these disparate people together and just get everybody talking. Interesting. And then he would sit and kind of orchestrate the conversation with everybody. And mixed in, you know, with... John Cusack famously tells the story about shotgun golf. And he's like, I showed up there looking for the crazy Dr. Thompson, and I met Hunter, and he's just this very well-spoken Southern gentleman. He's like, so where's the craziest? And he's like, well, it's the weekday, but don't worry, son. On the weekend, there will be games. And he's like, do you like golf? Yeah. He's like, do you like to shoot? Yeah. He's like, so he's, he's like, I have to go deal with this hideous court case. So he's like, set me up on the back porch with a bucket of golf balls and a shotgun and a bottle of whiskey and said, do you hit the golf ball and try and shoot it out of the air? What? And Yeah. But then that evening, they could be sitting around in his kitchen talking with politicians and poets about the the roots of, you know, different philosophies and all this stuff. And that's the kind of guy he was. A very salon atmosphere is how it's been described. and Which in itself is very American and decadent. And, oh, yeah, in its own way. And intellectual decadence, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, no, that's the thing. is, It's it's easy from the movie and his writing and this uh, this character to view Thompson as, as a heroic figure. Right. But he wasn't. And he would never have called himself a hero. He's an anti-hero in the truest sense of the word. Which I guess is just odd to, when we read stories and watch movies... To have an unreliable narrator and to have the protagonist really as your antagonist mm-hmm. is hard. And to be reading something that's close to journalism with an unreliable narrator. You're never quite sure, is this thing that he's doing real? Is that crazy thing real? Is any of it real? Yeah, well, he even says, um, even the main character doesn't know what's going on. Am I just walking around in a drug-induced stupor? Yeah. Like, he doesn't even freaking know. Yeah, and that that to me is what's is what's fascinating. The you know the the movie itself is is wonderful, and the story around making it is just as wonderful because they tried they did the. It's one of three movies that's been made about him. The original uh, Where the Buffalo Roam with Bill Murray and uh, Peter, the dad, and everybody loves Raymond. Oh. Uh, yeah, who played... Uh, Frankenstein guy. Yeah, he played Hunter Co- or Oscar Acosta. And it's a much calmer film. A lot of people don't like it because it's a bad movie, but their performance is great in it. And they spent years trying to do Fear and Loathing. Originally, they he, because Thompson knew all these, these guys through Bill Murray, he wanted Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi to play the roles. Oh, I don't think that would have worked. Uh, but I Belushi think, died and then... I think Johnny Depp was... An amazing choice because he's so physical, he's so method. Well, he was a later choice for it. And really? When he met Thompson, they became friends. He's like, what do you think about me doing this? He's like, well, Depp has to do it. And he called, always called him the colonel. Uh, so he would write Depp letters and it was, you know, colonel, you know, I need help, help. Or call him at three in the morning or whatever and just be weird. But he lived in his basement for like three months and went everywhere with Hunter and every time he lit a cigarette, Johnny lit a cigarette, whatever, drank drugs, they did it all together. And then as production neared, he had to get ready to shave his head, so Thompson shaved his head. Into that horrible... Yeah. The clothes he's wearing are Thompson's clothes. The Great Red Shark in the movie is his car. Like, it's... He was heavily involved in the production. And you can tell, like, there's a huge commitment to the role, and... Mm. I think I wanted to see it so bad when it came out because A, it was Johnny Depp and I was in love with Johnny Depp. And B, Christina Ricci plays, or Ricci, whatever Mm -hmm. her name is, um, plays that Lucy. Yeah. That they mistreat horribly. (laughs) Like, I don't even, I'm pretty sure he, it's like statutory rape. There's insinuations that he has taken advantage of this girl physically while she's on acid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is even more disgusting. Like, oh, God. That whole character is disgusting. But I wanted to see it. Mom and Dad wouldn't let me. Oh, God, no. I don't think they saw it, but they said no. 
And I was. But they livid. would have known of it because dad would have. They dad would have read Rolling Stone in the seventies. Like oh yeah, Hunter was a a mythic folk figure during that time. So everybody knew about him, even if you didn't read him. So there's a very good possibility that dad would have bought a Rolling Stone in the seventies and. Oh, and probably. I just. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hated it. Uh, no, you know what? I didn't hate it. I can see the value in what the narrative is saying, what the underlying tone of it is, mm-hmm. and hopefully that's a win for you. No, I, that's, um, that's the whole point of doing this. Did I really want to wade through all the bullshit and the ridiculous, disgusting, depraved behavior? No, just to get to that. Well, it's it's the wave speech, and which is why I put it right at the top of this episode, yeah. the whole speech, so we could all... And I didn't have to refer back to it. Well, that just, was my note on page 179 or yeah. whatever it was. The, the wave speech is, and it's abbreviated in the movie, but that's fine, is so brilliant and so perfect. And for me as a writer, I think that's... Because we, we've talked about before on the show that we two very different writing styles... And we're drawn to not just our, our prose being different, but our narrative approach is very different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was drawn to his writing and still am. And it's why I still go back and I'll read, reread his books, uh, reread favorite articles, because his ability to be at equal parts funny, absurd, brutal, eloquent still through all that tell you the truth yeah and i every sentence i can really appreciate that and there's some of how i try to write in what he said because and sometimes this can be my downfall too i don't just want to tell a beautiful story i want to tell it in a beautiful way prose is incredibly important to me as a writer and a reader that's why i i struggle with hemingway because there's no elegance in his prose at all um, it's very to the facts, to the point, um, clipped, and that's not the way I write. Mm-hmm. So I like his style in terms of when he's actually saying something. And and you're right, and I won't I won't defend this point because I've read a ton of it and most of it. Not all of it's great. In fact, a lot of it's quite pointless. And he'd also be the first one to admit that, that he had a period where he was the most active and did his best work. And then it kind of fizzled out because he gained fame and couldn't go and do the kind of work anymore. Right. So now all of a sudden you have this skill set that you're a master at, but you can't practice it the way you need to, to be truly brilliant. Well, and I think that comes along with people who write too many books, especially when they're... um literary pieces. I'm not talking about the people who write the crime novels that just pump mm-hmm. them out. I'm talking about a Tom Robbins where you have one book that's brilliant, like even Cowgirls Get the Blues. I don't know if you've read any no, of Robbins. I have not. And it has a linear storyline and then you get a little bit famous and then you start pumping stuff out and it's garbage or it's garbly and you can't understand it. Margaret Atwood went through this similar thing too because I've read everything she's ever written. She hit a point of being really amazing with Handmaid's Tale, Alias Grace, and then she just seemed like she started writing because it was lucrative. Kind of Margaret Atwood fan fiction. Yeah, and she kind of had to reel it back in because um, it wasn't working. Yeah, and and, and you are right. When you do write in a certain way, there are expectations, and because he was writing journalism pieces, you know, writing for different magazines, largely for Rolling Stone, and his style is dependent on like, okay, Thompson, we want you to go to this uh, this event, and we want you to bring back you know six thousand words. Well, his style is completely dependent on him being able to physically go there, and kind of puppeteer everything from the background and be a little weird at the right moments. And it's kind of like that movie we watched with Marty um, back in the early spring. But those parents who did like the shock videos where they. Do you remember it? It was a bit of broken family, so the, the parents went oh, missing. Oh, yes, with Nicole Kidman, uh, the family fang. Yeah, it was so good, but yeah. they orchestrated everything. Yeah. It's a, it's performance art Yeah, to jar a reaction from people. So they're only looking for the reaction. 
Thompson at his best would get a reaction from people, but you, but in that reaction, see the actual truth of that person and what they were trying to hide from him. So he would be bring in that weird craziness to knock somebody off balance, and then in that moment be able to go, okay, I can tell that you're you've done this. You know, now now what? Now what can I get you to say to me? And I get you it. Know. It's just. And if you're not into heavy political writing, you're not going to like a lot of this stuff. It's it not very political. It's not that I'm not into it. Writer. It's the style is way too frantic, and because of my own mental health. I tend to gravitate towards things that, not that aren't deep and aren't cutting, because sometimes I need that, but Mm -hmm. especially because I read this at night before bed, (laughs) it got me all jacked up, like, just the thought and the things that would go through my brain. I'm like, I can't handle this in my life at this point. Mm -hmm. At 17, 16, yeah, I was all for that kind of madness. Can't right now. It's like mom reading Maeve Binchy. She has to read (laughs) something calming. And I I get it. I I completely get it. And I've often wondered because we're, Jack and I can both be very aggressive and we can both like grab onto something, whether it's an idea or whatever, and just fucking hold on like a dog with a bone. And just, we won't, if we're going to let it go, it's going to shreds. That's how you're getting it away from us. But we differ on how I think we kind of fuel that, you know, for me, this kind of his intense stuff is at once very inspiring and very motivating, but very calming in the same way that I listen to metal and it calms me down while firing me up. Yeah. It's that I don't understand. Okay. So our musical tastes, so we can come together on certain childhood things. Yeah, we can. I, Listen to music all the time. I do not enjoy loud music. There's a certain volume on the TV that just drives me insane. Um, so I listen to a lot of 90s, but folk, mm-hmm. coffee house, acoustic. If there's an acoustic channel on Spotify, I'm probably on it. Like, take any song and put it on a guitar and someone reinterpret. I'm on it. Bob... You can hear his music through the floor, pounding, until I have to say, okay, we're putting the kids to bed. You turn it down, please. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't understand how that is calming. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny, because what you're... I've been listening to a lot of Synthwave the last week or so, because I've been finishing a story uh, doing my work. But I, it's it's super calming for me, because it's it's empowering, and it's aggressive, and the music is aggressive for me. So I don't have to be that aggressive, oh, but it fires me up in just the right way where I feel best. Any metal fan, the music can make you feel very strong. Well, and it's amazing because it, that's a total psychological phenomenon. The same way that we give stimulants to people that um, are hyperactive yep. because it has the opposite effect. Um, whereas like I listen to hardcore hip hop rap when I'm doing my runs just to like motivate myself. Yeah. <laughs> the only time that can ever happen because... I'm just like, I get to go, I get to kill this. I'm like, I'm in it. Yeah. Make it a comeback. Here I am. Um, but I just, I can't. And I think we're just wired differently. Well, and yeah, it's that, that switch that happened at about 10, 11, you know, like into the, when, when the puberty switches happened over about that four year window there. Yeah. It just fired us in very different directions. But no, this, this to me is, is, I, I love it. I think there's really no other way to say it. And I've I've debated Thompson with people over the years. I I will celebrate the movie, but if people I've always said if you don't like something, you don't like it. Yeah. I won't just... I'm long past even though last week I did degrade myself to childish name calling about Fallen Kingdom. And I don't like that I did that. You did get really nasty. I got very petty and I I broke myself of that habit doing a frame apart where if you don't like it, that's fine, but say why. Yeah. What are the real reasons? Don't just be internet shitty with it and go, fuck that movie. That movie's dick. And fucking suck my butt. Like, yeah. like just eat my butt. Like, <laughs> okay, no. well, you did that with. I, I totally did. And I felt, honestly, I felt bad about it since. Well, you should. Like, because every few days I'll be like, oh, I told Fallen, King, Fallen Kingdom to fuck off. Like, and what are we doing? It's not that it's I funny. love the movie, though, but we're trying to get to a learning yeah. experience kind of vibe where we come and try and understand why the other person might like it. 
I understand it, but no. Now, having having gone through all this and got a, a peek at some of his better prose and stuff, would you, knowing that they're article length, so they're smaller, would you read any of his other pieces, the very famous, like the best of them? Probably. Okay. Because they're all just on the other side of the wall. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do like what he's saying, and I do love politics. I especially love when people come at politics like Dan the Man. Um, so I save the empire is all I heard there when he said that. <laughs> oh, well, that's what I was going for. Yeah. Um, I do love that. So, yes, I would probably try to do that in the future. Do I ever want to watch a movie like Fear and Loathing again? Hell no. Do I ever want to read it again? Nope. <laughs> what maybe we'll do then, and we'll, we'll come back to this later on the show as a bit of a... Uh, you know, six months later, how's Jack doing with her Thompson recovery? <laughs> maybe have her read another piece and maybe watch Where the Buffalo Roam. The first I'd movie. be interested to see Bill Murray's interpretation because one of the things that I did like about this movie and what drew me to it when I was younger was the fact that it was Johnny Depp. His, his performance of Duke is spot on because it is a very exaggerated version of the real-life Thompson, whereas Bill Murray plays Thompson much more true to self. He's much quieter. He Johnny Depp injected a lot more swearing into the movie than Thompson swears in real or swore in real life or is in the book. Mm-hmm. He's when he's not being wild and crazy for work, he's a very traditional Southern gentleman. Holds chair holds chairs out for ladies, holds the doors always opening his home to people. Like he so he's this constant dichotomy. Yeah. Which of, is interesting. Yeah. I because if you just got a snapshot of fear and loathing and you just thought that's who that person was, I'm like you're a waste of space. Yeah. And it's unfortunate sometimes, but it's the reality of how we judge people. If you present yourself as a total lunatic, no one's going to hear your message. Yeah. If you deliver that on a garbage can lid, your message, no one's going to get it. And I struggled. I struggled. Had I just been alone in the whole process, I would have just left it. Yeah. So Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. I consider that a victory then. A, a victory for sibling understanding. Yes. So I will I will take it as I do my Thompson hand gestures. So what do we what do we have for Coltley Corner here? So what Jack is Jack's Okay, Coley so Corner. there was a beautiful piece in the movie that I loved visually, and that's where it all came together and it calmed down and my brain stopped firing on all cylinders. Like when is this ever gonna end? Um is when he's sitting at the typewriter. It's the end soliloquy that he does, the final one. And he's talking, 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 and then the camera is pulling out of this big tunnel. And he said something along the lines of, is it all just random madness, or is some force tending the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, that's what what he's talking about there is is he's referring to uh, Timothy Leary and the, the acid explosion, you know, and he said that's the the essential fallacy of the acid generation, you know, that there was someone tending the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, and I just and there got... Wasn't. I just got out of it that that was life in general. Is there some other force that's bigger than us? Yeah. All energy flows to the whim of the great magnet. You know? Well, and I thought yeah. it was beautiful, and I was like, end it there. And then they panned the scene with him driving down the highway. I'm like, fuck, it's going on longer. And then I realized, no, it couldn't have ended there. It had to show, um, this is his character arc. He's driving into the sunset. Everything's He's calm. Left. Everything's good. He's left. And that's basically what I think um, the world can be. So if America can heal from whatever garbage that they're doing, there's yep. always going to be a light. There's always going to be a rebirth. Yep. And I got it. I did. Um, to the L.A. freeway in frantic oblivion. Yeah, and yeah. that was like that and the the water wave. The wave speech, yeah. It's great. They are stunning, yeah. stunning, stunning. Um, but you got to wade through it. Yeah, if you're, if you're not ready for a very avant-garde, very untraditional film, you're, you're not going to enjoy it. You're going to have to film. wave through that dirty, bologna cheese-filled Benicio del Toro water. <laughs> To get <laughs> to the point of the movie. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah, I could I could go on and on and just talk about every scene in the movie, but that's probably not <laughs> what we want to do here to, to stay on message. 
But we hope you guys enjoyed this. We hope it inspired you to to go out and maybe read some Thompson. I suggest Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or uh, The Great Shark Hunt, uh, which is the Gonzo Papers Volume 1. It's his first collected uh, volume of collected works, and all the best stuff is in there. Uh, Strange Rumblings in Altazan, uh, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. All the best stuff is there. Uh, or... Look at people in your own life. Look at your siblings. Look at your friends and find books and movies that you so frantically disagree on. And why don't you shut the fuck up for a minute and sit down and ask them why? Ooh, I like and learn a little something. Bob. So, yeah. <laughs> Good learn, job. learn a little something, you shit. Learn, don't so, be Fallen Kingdom. Learn something. So can I... Can I know we already have a plan, but now should we follow this up with Margaret Atwood? Because <laughs> oh, I have been waiting years to get Bob to read that. We, we can, yeah, we can, we have all the, all into next year, we haven't prepped any of that content yet. It's so. like, give me six months. Fuck, <laughs> to read 38 pages of her prattle. Um, okay, Man. so what? <laughs> I know that's not what it's about. And it's not. So. Um, what is coming up next episode? So next episode is the big number five. Fives Ooh. and zeros is what you celebrate when you're over 30. When we're into September, which is my birthday month, yeah. which I think everything in this month is fitting. Yeah, it's it's all very much geared towards you uh, next month. So, uh, no, that's August, dude. Your birthday's in September. We have two more episodes this month. No, we don't. Yes, we do, because today's, we're recording this in July... Oh, it's... And Friday <laughs> Why did I think it was August? August. <laughs> no, August okay, is next okay, month. Okay, sorry, sorry. We're moving into August, not September. Yeah, August I'm, is nine. Like I'm tired now. It's time for bed. My no. kid's still up upstairs. I can hear them. Dad's no. phoning again. But okay, where are my kids? <laughs> okay, let's wrap it up. But no, uh, next, next episode is uh, actually completely you-centric, along with September fucking older sibling thinks she knows shit uh next episode we are going to be looking at what was probably jackie's biggest childhood jacqueline sorry jacqueline or jack jack i'm talking about childhood shit gets me uh her big you know it's her ghostbusters yeah. So next episode, we are going to be looking at the Wizard of Oz. Ooh, are we reading the book too, or are we just watching the two films? I, I can't. Do we want to read the book? I, I'm sorry. Are you short on time? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm fucking slogging through a Magica right now by Clive Barker, and we have to read for September. And I've read the first three okay. of the books. Okay. But the the big things we're going to be looking at in that episode are The Wizard of Oz and Return, Return to, to Oz. Two cornerstone films for us yes. as kids. It didn't get much bigger than Wizard of Oz, and Return to Oz continues to be one of the most badass fucking Disney movies And a controversial, controversial yeah. movie for a lot of people, too. So tune in next episode. See? You almost did it, too. I did. Tune in next episode to see us yep. talk about The or Wizard to, or of Oz. Or to hear us talk about it. Yeah, hear yeah. us. You can't see us, damn it. We could be fucking doing anything right now. Could, could, there could just be me doing both voices. I was voices. scratching my eye. Jake's yeah. <laughs> done. So I'm, I'm done. I'm I've so parented <laughs> all day. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was a really good episode, Bob. No, I, thanks, Jack. It felt really good. Yeah, it did. Yeah, We're good. good. You can go now. I felt really good about <laughs> okay. it. Okay. No, uh, well, one thank you guys for joining us. Remember uh, to like, subscribe, and follow us on SoundCloud. Uh, like, subscribe, and follow on iTunes. Uh, actually, I'm still waiting for the iTunes email response. They haven't approved us yet because apparently we're not a real podcast. What? Yeah, I'm still waiting for them. Well, not iTunes yet. We'll let you know yeah. when that happens. But we're still on SoundCloud, so you can check us out there. Uh, big thanks again to everyone that's been listening so thank far. You. Find us on Facebook. Feel free to uh, shoot us a message or an email. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, please, God, we'll get a little lowly over here. Uh, but uh, join us next time. And remember, a lot can change in 14 months.